Would you open God's precious holy word to John chapter 20? John records these three appearances here in this section as he is bringing his gospel message to a close. We saw last time how that uh, Christ yielded up his spirit. He, he's alive. He's, he's come forth. But his first appearance here in John is to Mary Magdalene. Now over in the Gospel of Luke, we learn that uh, Mary Magdalene is a woman who had seven demons and she was delivered from those seven demons and she became a longtime follower of Christ in the gospel message. A lot of things have been said about Mary Magdalene. A lot of people think that she was a prostitute or something, but the Bible doesn't say that. It just says that she was a woman who had been possessed by seven demons and she could have been uh, oppressed and uh, taunted and, and, uh, and terribly treated in her life because of those seven, seven demons. And we don't know exactly what it was, but there was that much to say about it. This was a woman who was in darkness. And when she came to know Christ, all of that darkness was alleviated. This is the first appearance of Christ here recorded after his resurrection. So let's look at it, John 20 and verse, beginning in verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. Now the tomb was empty. And so as she was crying, she stooped down to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. There's an interesting comparison that can be made here. Back in the Old Testament, you remember in the book of Exodus, and then it's mentioned again in Leviticus, when the Ark of the Covenant was constructed, it, the lid, the top of it was the mercy seat. And at either end of the mercy seat, was a likeness of cherubim, of a cherub. Now the cherubim are very powerful angelic beings. They are, they are mentioned briefly in Genesis. They're mentioned again. Well, they're mentioned in the law of Moses. Uh, and they're mentioned in Ezekiel. Of course, they're mentioned as well in the Revelation. But they have a they have a close proximity throughout the Old Testament to what is really the reality of the Christ. Now in the New Testament, the beggar cried out, the publican, the tax gatherer, cried out, broken on his face before God, cried out to the Lord in his sin for the Lord to be mercy seated for him. 
And on the Day of Atonement, of course, the blood was spilled and it came down on the, on the mercy seat. And it, it was a proclamation that the sins of Israel were forgiven uh, because of that uh, ritual. It was something that was repeated every year. But it had to do with the cleansing of the blood, the forgiveness of sin for atonement. And interestingly, one cherub, the likeness of one cherub was on one end of the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat, the lid. And a likeness of the cherub was on the other end and their wings were stretched forward, covering the top of the mercy seat. Thus, the mercy seat was in the shadow of the wings. The likeness here is compared in that where the slain body of Christ, Christ having been offered for our sin, had been laying and was now gone at either end was an angel. Now, what were they cherubim? Were they, were they making that comparison? I don't know, but it's a nice thought to think that here is where sin had been settled at the cross and then the burial. So they were there, one angel at the head and one angel at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. They said to her, woman, why are you crying? Now that is an excellent question. Jesus is going to ask the same question to her. What's there to cry about? Women cry easily, you know. They do. And you, you think, what's so, what's so sad? Why in the world are you crying? Well, here's an empty tomb. Jesus had said he would come back out of the grave. But she's crying. And so, I mean, you know, even an angel from heaven can't figure it out. <laughs> so the angels are they're saying, why are you crying? <laughs> well... She said, because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. <laughs> well, not to lose the holiness of the moment. <laughs> That's kind of typical, you know. The woman is crying because she wants to know something and it's being withheld from her. She doesn't know. <laughs> I got to know this, right? They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. He was different. And now Jesus asks her. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you crying? Here is the resurrected Christ. Look, in all of history, this is no small moment. 
that God who had become a man placed himself on an altar of sacrifice, yielded up his spirit when he completed the work as a sacrifice for sin that he had come to accomplish and is deposited in the grave and now is raised up. Let me tell you what this resurrection means. It's just something of what it means. It means that the Father has been satisfied with the work of the Son, that redemption has been completed. He was, he was buried. Paul writes to the Romans, he says, he was buried for our transgressions and he was raised for our justification. Christ offers himself as a payment for the sin of his own. It's personal to me, I've told you this. He offered himself for me. Now, if he is left in the tomb, it wouldn't have been a sufficient payment. But if he comes forth out of the tomb, the payment will have been accepted. Legal tender in heaven's economy. And the Father thus would declare atonement for all for whom Christ had died, the redeemed, and we would be given eternal life because now death has no power in human living. No power over those of us who are in Christ Jesus. No small moment, this resurrection of Jesus Christ. He did what he came to do he was raised up from the grave and now grants this same power over death, this atonement for all, for all of us who are in Christ. He grants to us this atonement. We are given this justification. We, are, we have righteousness imputed to us because of the work of Jesus, God the Son. There is no other work that can do that. There is no other way to be saved. There is no other way to find forgiveness of sin and to find that that sin will be taken by the Son of God himself and put away. And that payment would be accepted by the Father. There is no other payment that can be made for sin. If someone is not in Christ, he dies in his sin. And there is a terrible punishment because now the wrath of God, not having been satisfied for that person's sin, will thus be meted out upon that unbelieving, unsaved person in the second resurrection. In their physical death, they will descend to Hades, the netherworld of the wicked dead, and there they will be in torment until the second resurrection in which they will be raised to a resurrection of damnation. And they will suffer what Christ had said would happen in the outer darkness. There will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And if you read the language, it'll tell you that it never stops, never ends. 
That's the second resurrection. No wonder John would say in the Revelation, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Because we are, we are raised and finally glorified in that resurrection in the beauty of eternal life. And it's guaranteed to us because of what Christ has done here and because the Father has accepted it. Well, keeping it in the context, the woman has blurred vision, I'm sure, because of her tears. She's overwhelmed with grief. She's confused. She doesn't understand. Her problem was she came looking for a dead Christ, and Christ is not dead. He lives like he said he would. And so... Woman, why are you crying? Whom are you seeking? Thinking him to be the gardener? She said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. That's how she knew him. She recognized his voice and overwhelmed with the reality and the truth of the moment. All she can say is, oh, teacher. A term of endearment for those who followed Christ. Now, she's very emotional. Isn't it a wonderful thing? I think there's a new kind of a song that says, he knows my name. Is that a kind of a new song? Kind of an old song? It's somewhere in there. Well, I'll tell you this. If I'd have thought of it, I'd have wrote it first. He knows my name. He carried me to the cross and carried me into the grave, my sins, and put it all away. And now she knows her Lord. I will know him when I see him. He will know me when he sees me. Because what he did on the cross, through the grave, into the resurrection, and even beyond into the ascension. And now, as the great high priest, what he did, he did for me. What he's doing now, he's doing for me. So now recognizing him, having heard him call her name, she says, teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. Okay. Maybe Jesus wasn't a hugger either. I don't know. <laughs> I bet he was. 
But there's a deep meaning here. Now, like, like, like a previously traumatized, greatly relieved, and highly emotional woman, she grabbed him. But the word here, in its, in its participle uh, version, uh, the word here is, is, a, is a word where he says, uh, hop to. The word is, is kind of a, a heavy word. It, it really could be best translated, stop, stop adhering to me. She glued herself to him. You know, I had you once. I'm not going to let you go back into anybody else's grave. Of course, that would have been impossible. But she's so overwhelmed, she just grabs him and she don't ever want to let him go. As a matter of fact, in, in legal terms, the, a version of the word means to assault somebody. <laughs> Stop assaulting me. <laughs> Stop clinging to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. I have a phrase that I use occasionally. He died to save us. He lives to keep us. He's coming again for us. He still, he still will perform this high priestly work for us, for his own. He still has this work to do. And even beyond that, he still must ascend to the Father. And thus, and we studied it in John 14, 15, and 16. He spent all this time teaching his disciples, I'm going up and I'm going to send the comfort. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And you're going to have me everywhere. Not just in one place. I will be everywhere with you, wherever you are. I will be with you, the Spirit of Christ. So he says, I can't stay here. Stop clinging to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Perhaps the writing in Hebrews from, I don't know, from the end of chapter 6, maybe all the way through, of course, chapter 7. On even to chapter 9. It, it, the, 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 the truth and the beauty of the ministry of the high priest is given to us. And we're, it's explained to us that he's without father and without mother. He's not like the Levitical or the son of Aaron. He's not like the high priest who, who kept dying and had to be replaced by one of his descendants. This high priest lives forever. And Hebrews 7 says, he lives forever to make intercession for his own. He's keeping me saved, you see. And how he does that is he ascends to the Father. The whole thing is a revelation of the truth that there will be a time of gathering for his own. You know, you get to the book of Acts, right after all this, you get to the book of Acts, the ascended Christ, is, he, spends, you know, he spends those 40 days with them. 
Then he ascends into heaven. And then before he ascends, they say, well, now are you going to restore the kingdom to us? See, they keep expecting the immediacy of the kingdom and that's not in the plan. And he has to tell them, this is my father. My father's got this planned out. Because there is a time, a great, wonderful time of gathering where Gentiles are grafted in and we're called to come in and in a spiritual sense be part of Abraham's seed. And during all of that time, while he sends the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is convicting and calling those who would come to Christ, Christ stands in our behalf as our great high priest making intercession for us. We have an accuser and he accuses us. We have an intercessor who intercedes for us. And this is his message to those who are trying to hold on to him and keep him here in the sense that, that they could see him physically. I've not yet ascended to my father's, but my father, but I'll tell you, go to my brothers. It's the first time in John that he calls them his brothers. And say to them, I ascend to my father and your father. And my God and your God. This puts us in a family with Christ, the risen Son of God. And He declares to His own, My Father is your Father, and my God is your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now he appears to his disciples the first time here without Thomas, and the second time with Thomas. While it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and while the doors were shut, don't, uh, don't, don't lose the depth of that word up there in the Greek text. Here's what it means. They were padlocked in. I mean, you know, how many, if you can get a modern day picture, they had about a dozen bolts on the door and then they had a bar. I mean, it's as strong of a word as you can think of. They had locked themselves away tight from anything that's going on outside. They're scared. They're traumatized and they're afraid. The horrible thing that had just happened to Jesus. Probably they think they're next. And they are scared of what they think might be about to happen to them. So they're, they're barred away. The, 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 the import of the text is... Things were shut down so tight, it was, it was practically impossible in a normal fashion to get into this house, to get into this room where they were. Doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus 
came. Now that's a good word. Uh, Elfin. Elfin. He appeared. He was not there and he was there. Jesus came and stood in their midst. Now we're told up here that they're padlocked in and they're shut down tight. No way in any kind of normal way could somebody get into that place. And so they're all upset. No telling what they were saying. Scared to death. Wondering what their plan has to be to find some kind of way to escape from all of this. And Jesus just standing there in their midst. Hey, look, look over here. He's standing there. No doubt with a beautiful smile and with all of the love that could be imagined, stood in their midst and he said, peace be with you. They needed this peace more than anything. The peace that passes all understanding. The peace that only the Lord can give. Jesus knew exactly where they were, how to get in there, and what to do when he came in. He didn't scold them. He didn't walk around kicking them and say, what are you shivering over here for? Why are you afraid? Get up and act like a man. You know better than that. He didn't say that. He didn't condemn them at all. They didn't need condemnation. They needed peace. And Christ brought them peace. Peace with you. The word be, B-E, is in italics, which means it's added by the translators. But the literal is this, peace with you. Peace with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Joy. Man. Uh, you know, this is a gospel according to Charles. You can take it or leave it, but I would expect somebody would have said, unbar and unshutter the windows. Let the light in so that I can see this better. Happy, happy, happy reunion with Christ. He not only brought them peace, but he brought them joy. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now this is the initialization of the Great Commission. The only ones at this point in time qualified to go out and go forth would be these 10. So Judas wasn't there. Thomas wasn't there. 
And the 10 are there. And here's what he says to them. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. So he commissioned them to go forth as the Father had commissioned him to go forth. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he empowered them for the job. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So they're commissioned and they are empowered to do the work. We are never called to do a work until we are empowered to do that work. God doesn't work on probabilities. God's not a gambler. It's a sure thing with God. If God makes a covenant with his son, if the father makes a covenant with the son, before there was ever time or space, and he makes an eternal covenant that he is going to give the elect to the son, God's not going to take a chance on that. God doesn't work in probabilities. God is an absolute God. The marvelous story of grace written in the covenant, the eternal covenant of blood between father and son in a realm of existence that we cannot understand. So he empowered them. He gave them something to do and then he empowered them. And then he said, let me tell you how important this work is. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now, when you look at the Great Commission back in Luke uh, 24, it's a wonderful study to note how the Great Commission comes in all the Gospels. We, we mostly think of the one in Matthew, you know, go into all, as you're going into the world, so forth. But here, in Luke, or there in Luke chapter 24, they are commissioned to preach repentance and forgiveness of sin. That's what we're commissioned to do. The bottom line is forgiveness. You know, let me tell you. It is not our first work to seek within our own power to be a blessing to people in a social sense. Ours is not a social gospel. We can try to help people in many ways, but our first and foremost priority, the priority of the Great Commission is to preach repentance and forgiveness of sins. People need forgiveness. But before they 
can understand that, they have to understand they are sinners. And they can remove from themselves from that moving into sin by repentance and then forgiveness of sins. But here's what Jesus says. In order for people to have their sins forgiven, you must go and preach the gospel. Everyone in the human race, except for Jesus of Nazareth, everyone in the human race is born a sinner. We are sinners while still in the wombs of our mothers. Psalm 51, in sin my mother conceived me. That doesn't mean that David was conceived in an act of adultery. It means that when he was conceived, he had clothed upon himself, just by the nature of Adam, sin. Everyone who is born into the human race is a sinner. Everyone needs to hear the gospel We are encumbered, we are called, we are sent forth, we are commissioned to preach the gospel. And the heart of the gospel is that people will be forgiven of their sins. We're not out there to tell them how to live a better life or how to go on a diet. We're not there to tell them how to improve their lives in any kind of way or their married life or or how to be a better parent, just read the book and follow it. You'll get all of those things. But what we are prioritized in our commission to do is this one thing. Preach repentance and the forgiveness of sin. If we don't preach it, nobody else will. And forgiveness is found nowhere else but in Christ. We must preach Christ and him crucified and why is he crucified he's crucified that he might save sinners by offering himself as a sacrifice in the gospel of Luke again Jesus said I have come to seek and to save that which was lost some people try to put, it's in the neuter. Some people try to put that in a, some sort of gender, like I have come to seek and to save the one who is, no, it doesn't say that. It says, I have come to save, look it up in your Greek. I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. Adam's original standing. A beautiful life of sinlessness in the presence of God. Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. It is restored to those who come to Christ, to those who are in Christ, to those who are saved, to those who will believe. This is the gospel, this is their commission. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. We have this, we have this 
great task of carrying the gospel. The unbelieving world will not carry it. Believers carry this gospel. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit so that we can boldly proclaim this gospel and as we preach it and as we teach it along the way, some will be saved. Paul was on Mars Hill preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Jesus kindness to see. These Greeks, the Areopagites, thought he was preaching a God, a new God, and his consort, goddess. Because resurrection in that sense is in the feminine. Well, that was crazy. Paul continues and he says, you built an altar out here to an unknown God, but I've come to declare to you this God. You don't know him, but you can. He's not far from any of us. In him we live and move and have our being. The great gospel of Jesus Christ. Now these are 30 of the greatest people in the world. Scholastically, academically, intellectually. In a, in a worldly sense. Paul preaches and one of them is saved. Think about that. The power of the gospel, even into the mind of one of the world's greatest intellectuals. But then not only that, but Dionysius, these two, these two individuals, the woman who was there, this all started in the market square, so she would have been a prostitute, and she followed along and listened to the gospel on top of Mars Hill. And then the Areopagite listened to the gospel, and you have one of the greatest intellectuals in the world and a streetwalker, both of them come into Christ on the same day by the same gospel message. They were forgiven of their sins. This is the gospel, the great gospel of Jesus Christ. Some will be saved according to the will and purpose of God. And so I'm not the, I'm not the perfect, I'm not the one who perfectly knows all whom God will save. But I am encumbered with this great task to preach this gospel because the only way people can be saved is to be saved by hearing the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are a sinner. How many times you have to sin to be a sinner? Let me go through the Ten Commandments. We'll find a lot of ways that you are a sinner. And now having broken the law of God, you are guilty. And the only thing that awaits you is a hard, cold death that will ultimately send you to hell and then into the lake of fire, except that God has divinely intervened Graciously, with grace, he's given his only son and offered the perfect lamb in your behalf. Would you believe? Would you acknowledge that you're a sinner? Would you believe in Jesus? Would you call on him to save you in confessing your sin? He'll save you. Someone says, well, that's awfully cheap. It ain't cheap, it's free. 
It's very expensive to the one who provides it. Absolutely free to the one upon whom it's bestowed. You say, well, that's awfully simple. Yeah. Very complicated to the one who provides it. God becomes a man, creates everything, and before that, a covenant is made. And then through all of this, through all of this creation, the final ratification and completion of the terms of that covenant that was made before the foundation of the world and all that happened from creation to consummation. From the first man to the last one, beyond the first heaven and first earth, to the new heaven and new earth. Yeah, that's pretty complicated, but it's free. And it's easy. And it's simple. Because he did all the hard stuff. And so we are commissioned with this great commission. Jesus is essentially saying, if you don't preach forgiveness in this world, it ain't going to get preached. Because you're the ones who are commissioned with this great message. It's a simple message. Now, once we come to Christ, I think people ought to seek to know God better and Christ better. And in doing so, you, you study the, the Bible more deeply and you get to know Christ even better and you get closer and more knowledgeable of your creator, your redeemer, your friend. But first and foremost is to acknowledge sin. I'm a sinner. I don't want to die a, an unforgiven sinner. I want to be forgiven. Live forever. Well, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to carry forth this great commission. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Receive the Holy Spirit. Now carry forth this message of forgiveness. And if you don't go, nobody else will. The great direction, the directing of the work of the church from heaven through the Holy Spirit. We have people working through missions and we have people working through uh, various ministries of the church. The foundational thing that we're supposed to do is to preach the gospel of repentance and forgiveness of sin. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. You'll hear me say that a lot when people come to me and they apologize for not being there last Sunday. I said, you mean last Sunday when Jesus came? <laughs> so the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, nope, don't believe it. Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. This, just a real 
party pooper, isn't he? All these happy disciples. We saw the Lord. We saw the Lord. Oh, bull. <laughs> Did you poke your finger into his hand? Did you slide your hand up into his side? All right. So here's old Thomas. After eight days, that <laughs> had to have been the longest eight days. I, I like that Jesus waited a while. After eight days, his disciples were again inside. Thomas this time was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut. Same thing like it was before. Stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, he already knew Thomas's heart. He said to Thomas, come here. Bring your finger here, see my hands. Go ahead, poke the hole. Bring your hand here. Look at my side. Go ahead. Stick it in. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And here's what I like. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. The power of the Holy Spirit of God, the power of the truth of his resurrection, reaching even to me all of these centuries and centuries later. I'm blessed. I'm blessed in a sense that Thomas is not blessed because I did not see and yet I have believed. Finally, the purpose of John's gospel. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also did in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written. Two things. Number one, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And number two, and that believing you may have life in his name. I told you at the outset of this thing that John presented seven miracles, seven signs. Okay, so put your books away and give your pencils and your paper up and we're going to find out which seven of them. Number one, the wedding at Cana, changing the water into wine. Number two, healing the nobleman's son. Number three, uh, the lame man. At the pool of Bethesda. Number four, feeding the multitude. Number five, healing the blind man. Number six, raising Lazarus from the dead. And number seven, raising himself from the dead. I get an A. <laughs> I wrote these things, specifically these things, to demonstrate the deity of Christ. Son of God, the power to create, the power to transform water into wine, to create something out of nothing and feeding the multitude, to heal, a, to heal a lame man, the power to remake who he is physically, who for, what, 38 years had been brought to that place? Everybody knew him. The blind man who was born blind, John said to remake his eyes, the power, the son of God, but not that, not just that Lazarus, four days, 
Four days in the grave, sealed up, wrapped up. Lazarus, come forth. And he brought one alive who had been dead in the grave. But the greatest of all, for the sake of his own, for, the, for my sake, he raised himself from the grave, proving forevermore that my sins have been atoned. It's all been paid for, accepted in heaven. It was accomplished by the Son of God. I believe it, and I have life in his name. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came into this world to save sinners. In just a moment, we'll be dismissed in prayer, but as you're dismissed, here's how we handle the invitation. As you exit, we have deacons and wives standing in the doorways just as you exit. You'll see them right across the hall. And they are there to speak with you, to pray with you. Is God calling you to come to Christ? Tell our deacons about it. They'll open the word. We'll pray with you as you come to Christ today. Maybe you're here already saved and you want to come and be a part of Shiloh and help us to carry this gospel. They'll tell you all about how you can become a member of Shiloh. We'll take care of all the details. Prayerfully, would you stand all over this room and we'll be dismissed.